This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll welcome back James Cummins, executive director of Wildlife Mississippi. Known for their conservation efforts around the state, James will share the latest on Wildlife Mississippi and how you can get involved. Dr. Major's not here yet, but hopefully he'll join the conversation and you can get your pet questions ready. And we're going to talk to Libby about what she's seeing out her window. Join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. If uh, a reminder that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning, Libby. Uh, how are things going? I remember, I think you told us last week you're you're back at home. Uh, last week we talked about golden silk orb weaver spiders. Uh, what else have you seen in your yard lately? Oh, okay. This week uh, the migrating hummingbirds has have um, taken up some of my time. I've moved the feeders now that leaves of the porch so they can still come and feed. I don't have any right this minute. It's raining, I think, just hard enough to keep them back. <clears throat> but just a reminder to people, uh, keep your hummingbird feeders up and keep them good and clean. And uh, there are a lot of uh, migrating ruby-throated hummingbirds right now, so it's a, a good chance you'll be able to attract them and maybe do them a little service, helping them uh, get south for the winter. And if you want to keep them up all year, there are several species. You might see a rufous or a broad tail, maybe even a black chin, buff bellied, several things that will be, um, uh, maybe it's an unusual sighting, but it, it's, it's uh, really fun if you get one of those um, unusually seen hummingbirds in Mississippi in the winter. So you might want to keep your feeder clean and up for um, all through the winter and see if you attract one of those. Uh, and let me also, you wanted to talk uh, about an event uh, that our friends at the Clinton Nature Center are having. Oh, yes, definitely. Thursday night at 7 o'clock, they're going to have a talk about Mississippi snakes. And uh, the way they're doing this, because of COVID, everything is outside. Bring your lawn chair, bring your mask for sure if you want to uh, maybe a water bottle, maybe even um, spray your legs for bug spray before you show up. And um, they space themselves out in the parking lot and they um, have their lectures anyway. And uh, they, but they do caution that you should not, you know, don't approach your friends too close when you're out there and uh, do your social distancing and wear your mask and, but come and enjoy learning more about Mississippi snakes. And uh, speaking of snakes, in the news, courtesy of the Clarion Ledger, a Mississippi man was preparing for the coming deer season when he came across a rare sight, two large male timber rattlesnakes fighting to establish dominance. His name is Forrest Russell Brandon, and he was in Wilkeson County hanging cameras at a friend's hunting camp when he caught two timber rattlesnakes in a full-out battle to establish dominance. Uh, we're going to post a link to the article and video on our website. Uh, uh, Forrest said he thought it looked like something from National Geographic. Uh, Libby, uh, I think you saw this article. What are your thoughts, and have you ever seen anything like that? Uh, years ago, gosh, maybe 
15 years ago even. And if Martha Cooper's listening, she may remember, we saw two male alligator snapping turtles uh, fighting, I guess, over a female. And uh, we watched for quite a while and then ran up the stairs of the nature trail to um, get the herpetologist and um, had a good conversation then with Terry Vandevender about it. And that's what he believes we were seeing. But they it was a lot of splashing. At first, we thought it was an alligator catching a fish. But um, it was the two um, snappers were kind of um, chest bumping each other and biting, and it was it was pretty wild. And um, I think that's kind of what was going on with these two snakes. But uh, sort of almost like an arm wrestling kind of a battle, I think is what he was seeing. And uh, Terry Vendevender said he'll call us in this morning if we have any more questions about it. All right. Uh, Dr. Major is on the line with us now. Dr. Major, did you hear the story about the, the snake fight, and have you ever seen anything like that? Never, ever. Uh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, you know, I've told the story about our king snake eating a copperhead before, but there wasn't a fight. The <laughs> king snake <laughs> ruled and was dominant. But uh, I would say, no, I haven't seen that. That's probably once-in-a-lifetime type thing that he saw. Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 why I think we enjoy being out in nature, and that's why we always ask uh, each week if you're listening and you've had a brush with nature that you'd like to share with us. Uh, it's always fun to hear about, and uh, if you ever come across something like that when you're out and about, it is uh, uh, you know that you're in for a, a one of a kind uh, event. So uh, interesting thing, and again, uh, our producer Java will post a link to the article and the video uh, from the Clarion Ledger on our website. Uh, we've got an early caller on the line, so why don't we say good morning to our friend Sue in Beaumont. Sue, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Well, first I'd like to ask a question. Do you, do you think the snakes might have been – do snakes battle for the fe- female's attention? Could, could they have been battling because of that? Oh, definitely, yes. That's that's what we we think it definitely was. They kind of have their own little territories, and when females come in their territories, that's their female for that length of time. And uh, so we're pretty sure that's what it was. Uh, Terry Vandevender said that, and I hate to put words in his mouth, maybe he'll call us in a minute, but um, that uh, male snakes don't go and hunt each other out. They're not into fighting that much but if a, if he's chasing a female or following a female scent and another uh, male snake appears he is going to do his best to get rid of that snake to run him off i had no idea and i don't think it's a bit <laughs> so we can only hope yeah, that they, whoever won was in a good enough shape uh, to you know enjoy maybe. the spoils of victory <laughs> and i want i want to ask a question about cattle egrets i, I see cattle egrets flying across in front of my house because my neighbor has cattle and i wonder i know they originate in africa right but where do they go where do they go when cold weather comes i don't see them in the winter time oh that's a good question sue and i think that they do migrate south oh, they I'll, do? I'll i'll do a little reading for you and let you know in a few minutes how about that all right well thank you all right, Sue, okay. thanks for the call. Good to hear from you. Uh, so we've talked about the, the snake battle and our friend Terry Vendevener on the line, our resident snake expert. Terry, thanks for joining us. What can you add to our discussion about this battle of two uh, rattlesnakes? Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, you're a snake expert here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating thing. Um, 
it's a very common thing. It happens all the time during breeding season. But you just have to be there at the right time and the right place to see it. And uh, my career as a herpetologist spans over 60 years, and I've worked from Canada to the Amazon, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of snakes op- snake observations, and I've never seen it in the wild. Hmm. So, uh, and, and what this is is exactly what they were saying, you know, y'all were saying. It's a, it's a territorial thing uh, between two males for territory and breeding rights. And um, all of our pit vipers, which is copperheads, cottonmouths, and rattlesnakes across the United States, all engage in this. And as a result, um, males get bigger than females. Because males are the ones that fight, and the bigger ones are the ones that win, and they're the ones who get to pass that gene along. So it's a, there. It's a pretty pretty fascinating thing. Um, let me see. What are some other interesting things about this? Um, well, Terry, let me ask you. What what does it look like? How do two snakes actually fight? Well, they go up in the air. They wrap around in kind of a spiral fashion, and it's kind of like arm wrestling. Uh, they try to tire the other one out, push him down, get him down to the ground, and make him subordinate and, and wear him out into where he goes away and then, you know, the dominant male is there. What's interesting is, so is the female. She's around there somewhere, and old Forrest, when he saw this and he recorded it, realized that somewhere around his feet there was the female watching this whole thing, you know, so... uh that, that adds a little, little bit of drama to it. Um, let me mention that a little bit about attitudes about snakes. Forrest, when he was like six years old, when he was a little boy, and now, of course, he's an adult, and he's getting all this attention over this video, his parents contacted me and wanted me to bring snakes to his birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't remember this. This was, you know, this was 30 years ago. And I didn't remember it, but I, came, I brought snakes to his birthday party and educated him and some of the children. I guess some of it stuck because he was uh, enamored by this. He took the time to uh, photograph it and videotape it. And as it turns out, um, you know, there have been a lot of negative comments about this. You know, I would have shot those two snakes with one bullet, you know, that kind of thing. He did not prescribe to that at all. And he let those snakes go, and and they're out there right now, you know, living the good life. <laughs> or at least but, one of them is, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, one of them he's a little depressed, probably. But he may have found a female down the road. Who knows? <laughs> you know, they don't they don't bite uh, during this period of time. There's no biting involved. Uh, it's simply wrestling. And so, um, breeding season for our pit vipers in Mississippi is a fall event. There have been occasional sightings of, of, of copperheads mating in the springtime, but they're very rare. It's fall events. It's, it's mid-August through September. And so that's when you're going to witness these kind of, of uh, wrestling matches, if you're so lucky. So. 
All right, Terry, thanks for calling in and then uh, giving us a little bit more information. This is a fascinating story, and I think uh, one of the things, when I was reading the article last uh, yesterday that you pointed out, I was glad to see uh, that uh, Forrest said that he did not he did not kill either snake, and he just let them go about their business and was uh, fortunate to have seen such a, an exciting uh, part of nature. And, uh, and you know, he went well in his way, and, and the snakes went on yeah. their way. Yeah, and that's a forward-thinking attitude. And uh, I have to say that the majority of people, in my opinion, would have killed those snakes. But maybe because of the, the viral posting of this and a lot of people seeing it and being fascinated by it, maybe it'll kind of plant a seed that, that uh, you know, just because they're venomous snakes, you know, they're not out there looking to bite you. And it really kind of takes something to get a venomous snake to bite you. They're pretty long-suffering. And so uh, maybe people will tend to, take a, a little bit more modern outlook toward them. So. All right. Again, Terry, thanks for calling in. Uh, it's time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll welcome to the show James Cummins from the Wildlife Mississippi. Known for their conservation efforts around the state, James will talk about the latest on Wildlife Mississippi and talk about how you can get involved. Also, Dr. Major here, ready for some pet questions. So call in with questions and comments. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment this morning, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Today we're going to talk about Wildlife Mississippi with their executive director, James Cummins. But we're also talking about the story about uh, two male uh, rattlesnakes and a rare uh, sighting uh, that a fellow from Brandon who was down in Wilkinson County uh, reported that was reported in the Clarion Ledger. Got a caller on the line that wants to comment on that. I think Christy is in Corinth. Good morning, Christy. Go ahead. Hello, good morning. Um, love the rattlesnake fighting story, but I did want to just make this comment. As a child or as a kid, I went to Warner Tully YMCA camp in Port Gibson, and we had we called him the Snake Man. He came every year for every session and educated us as young people about snakes. And from and because of that education, I've not been that trigger happy snake killer like so many are. Um, and I just wanted to point that out, that I think it's really important to, you know, just that education is the key to, to everything, I, I think. But especially with the snakes, I think we are a little too, get a little too, you know, ho happy to chop that head off or to shoot it. But um, I just wanted to give a shout out to all the people educating kids. 
All right, Christy, good point. Thanks for calling in. And, and I know that uh, each uh, year at the museum they have Snake Day, and that was one of the ways that that I'm not as afraid of snakes as maybe I used to be because I think when you can get up and close and personal with a snake in a controlled environment uh, where you can reach out and you can touch them and see how they interact and, and how they act, uh, it, it makes you a little bit less afraid of them. Uh, and I think that that's a good thing. And that's certainly something that Terry stresses every time that we have him on is uh, kind of like let the snakes go about doing their business. And I think that if I'm correct in saying, uh, and let me correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, snakes are almost more afraid of us than, than we are of them. Oh, yeah, definitely they're not out to, to hurt us. They, they want to avoid us and go on about their life. All right. As I mentioned, we have a guest this morning, and it's James Cummins from the Wildlife Mississippi. He is the executive director. James, thanks for being on the show with us today. Great. It's great to be here, and it's also great to hear Terry Ventavender's voice. All right. Uh, if you would, uh, tell us a little about your background. Well, I, I started out, I had uh, relatives that worked for the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks and really were, was fascinated uh, about what they did and ended up uh, going to Mississippi State and got my, my bachelor's in fisheries management and then went on to Virginia Tech and got my master's in the same thing and then did a little bit different uh, compared to what most people that, that major in fisheries or wildlife do. I, I went to Washington, D.C. and uh, worked for Senator Thad Cochran and, and helped him uh, work on natural resource policy. And, and then after that, I, I started working for Wildlife Mississippi and I've I've been there, been here ever since. So. Uh, how long have you been the executive director? So the organization was was formed in 1997. Uh, so and I have been executive director since then. So all right. Uh, so tell uh, us about Wildlife Mississippi, sort of with the mission and the goals that the organization has. Sure. So you know, our our vision as an organization is really that the conservation of our states lands and waters and natural heritage will really help secure the state's quality of life by making it a better place to live, work, and raise a family. So that's a little bit differently than, than, than most conservation organizations. And our mission is really to try to conserve our state's lands and waters in, in order to sustain a, a healthy environment uh, as well as a healthy economy. So we're really looking at trying to blend, blending those two together. Uh, we work in areas of, 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 of habitat conservation. We've conserved about a little over 500,000 acres in the state, uh, which we own in Fee Simple, about 25,000 acres. Uh, we work in the area of conservation education, uh, outdoor recreation, uh, as, as well as conservation policy. And I think maybe a little bit later on in the show, I can visit with you a little bit about some of the conservation policy initiatives that we have and some of the things that are going on uh, in our Congress in Washington. You know, you mentioned that you worked with uh, Senator Cochran's office for a number of years, and I'm wondering, uh, with your experience there and, and with Wildlife Mississippi, uh, do do lawmakers understand the connection between uh, conservation and economic development in states like Mississippi? You know, I would say some of them do, uh, uh, but by no means all of them. Um, you know, behind me in my office is a is a bunch of photos, and and one of the ones is Senator Lott, and he's got on there. He said thanks, and he wrote a little comment. He said thanks for helping make Mississippi a better place to live. So while I don't think uh, all all hundred U.S. senators understand it, I certainly think uh, most of them do. I know Senator Wicker does. I know Senator Cochran Cochran did. Uh, uh, people like Lamar Alexander of Tennessee and a, a number of others. So. Uh, uh, I think we do have some work to do, but, but we've got a lot of fans in the in the Congress as well. 
Uh, tell us about the Great American Outdoor Act. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, if you're sitting back and you're, you're watching the news, you, you kind of see a lot of bickering and fighting in Congress. And, you know, if I was to tell you, you know, this Congress or that the last two years, we've had more conservation legislation past Congress than, than in my entire lifetime, uh, or, or at least my entire career, rather, you know, you would probably you scratch your head. But that's that's absolutely what what has happened. Uh, the Great American Outdoors Act, uh, you know, is a piece of legislation. Uh, it, it passed the U.S. Senate uh, in, in mid-June. Uh, and what the bill does, it's, it's if you look at kind of whether it's our National Park Service or our Fish and Wildlife Service or our National Park Service, we have a tremendous uh, maintenance backlog, whether it be, you know, trails, campsites, scenic destinations. In fact, there's about a $22 billion dollar uh, maintenance backlog that we have uh, throughout throughout our nation, and what this bill does is is it puts in uh, a 9.5 billion dollars, uh, of, of which a good bit of this is is toward trying to deal with this maintenance backlog. So you know if you're if you're out trying to trying to avoid COVID and trying to social distance, you look at a lot of our outdoor recreation areas in the state are great places to go. Uh, but, you know, there may be things that are closed due, due to hazardous conditions. We've, we've got bridges and roads uh, that are really too unsafe or that are really unsafe to be utilized and, and even restrooms that have been, you know, shut down to, to neglect. So a lot of this, uh, these funds uh, will, will go toward refurbishing these and really getting these, uh, these facilities back in, in in the shape that we need to be. Uh, I'm a very big supporter of, of conservation funding. Uh, if you go back in the early 80s, you know, conservation funding represented about 2% of our of our federal budget, and now it's about 0.2%. So this is a, a welcome uh, uh, funding in order to try to bump that number up and get it back to where it, where it, it, it should be. Um, you know, so one one thing that that I'm really excited about that's a a component of the Great American Outdoors Act is is you know, earlier this year uh, Congress reauthorized the land or in, perpetually reauthorized the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and there's probably not a community in Mississippi that doesn't benefit from that being a small park, a trail, uh, uh, or you know buying land, would it be the Gulf Islands National Seashore? Uh, or even Yellowstone National Park, which you know our own U.S. Senator in the past, in the in the 1890s, helped helped establish. Uh, but what it does is is provides perpetual funding and mandatory funding at the rate of 900 million dollars annually that goes into the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, so instead of us trying to fight for appropriations every year, you know that funding would automatically be there, and that funding comes from a percentage. Of, of offshore fuel uh, or offshore oil and gas sales that are generated by the Department of the Interior. You know, you mentioned the the Outdoor Act and 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 the maintenance issues, and and you know, a friend of mine and I are doing exactly what you said. We've been trying to get out and enjoy nature while we're you know, COVID uh, is is on us, and so I've been enjoying a lot of the uh, state parks and and some of the other uh, outdoor op- opportunities in Mississippi. But I agree with you that uh, they're still they're still wonderful resources. But you do kind of cringe sometimes and see, gosh, it's a shame that that you know that there wasn't hasn't been the money for upkeep, and it's encouraging to me personally for sure uh, to hear that that that's going to uh, that's going to be remedied when we talk about the great american outdoors act what about its effect on wildlife uh, in mississippi and other states well 
certainly if, if you know, part, part of the funding, about, about half the funding goes to states uh, and about the other half goes to the federal government for, you know, uh, both of these can be used for land acquisition. So if we're looking at trying to, you know, acquire land, whether that be for a, a, a new, uh, a new uh, park in the state, uh, you know, that can help provide habitat for wildlife or, or even a new wildlife refuge or in addition to a national forest, uh, or even funding that can, you know, help help acquire uh, land that may be for a new state park. So uh, certainly, you know, depending on where you're at in the state, if, you know, if, if you're in Wilkinson County, you're going to see great benefits to Louisiana black bear. And if, if you're up around Corinth, you know, you may see a lot more benefits to wild turkey and, and, uh, and white-tailed deer and any number of other species that, that we have from, from one end of the state to the other. We're going to be visiting with James throughout the hour, but before our next break, let's get a couple of phone calls. Uh, first, we'll go to Wilma, who's called in from Memphis. Thanks for calling, Wilma. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Thank you. I've got two questions about the hummingbirds. Strawberry Plains at Holly Springs could not have the Hummingbird Festival this year due to COVID. When they do have it, they've got probably 50 feeders, and there are hundreds of hummingbirds. Well, they are open, so Monday a friend and I went down there, very disappointed to see a total of four hummingbird feeders. And we sat there for 30 minutes watching those four feeders and only saw two hummers. My question on that is, what about the hummingbirds that are used to coming there to be fueled up for migration? What's going to, where did they go? What happened to them? My second question is all the storms in the Gulf. Is that going to affect the migration? All right. Libby, can you take a stab at that? Okay. Yes to both of those. And I guess the, the thing that's happening up at Holly Springs, that's a, a great facility. They always run on a very minimum close budget. And just like James was talking about, when there's not funding for um, wildlife programs, facilities like that really are hurt. They are very understaffed. They're operating right now under very minimum staff. So I imagine that's what's going on with the smaller number of hummingbird feeders. And um, yes, hopefully those hummers all found another source of food, you know, whether it was uh, private individuals with feeders out. Our feeders are only meant to be supplemental, though, because hummingbirds need their natural food. They need to get nectar from flowers. They need to eat insects. They eat a good many insects, particularly when they're on uh, migration. So um, we just have to hope that those birds did find something else. And now in addressing the storm, yes, we know that uh, birds are diverted from their normal course. They are stressed greatly by storms. And yes, many of them die because of storms. You know, they, uh, thousands and thousands of birds are dying from the fires out west. That's, yeah. uh, a bird's life is pretty difficult. Oh, and while I guess we're talking, while I've got the mic here, I will mention that um, Sue was uh, asked earlier about uh, cattle egrets. Mm -hmm. And uh, a good many of them do stay along the Mississippi coast in Texas, Louisiana, Florida, overwinter the whole year that way. And then some go on down to Mexico. But so those birds, like all the others that are leaving here now to go, most of our songbirds or many, many of our songbirds uh, need to get on down to Mexico and South America, Central America for the winter. And they do have to contend with the storms. 
But they have done that since the very beginning of time. There have been some storms. Now, if there are more storms now, that means uh, greater stress on their populations. All right, uh, Wilma, thanks for your call. Let's get one final call in before our next break, and we'll talk to William in uh, Clinton, Louisiana. Good morning, William. You're on the air with us. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Sure, go ahead. Um, I am wondering if y'all are having the same problem with hogs as we do here with snakes. (laughs) They come in and they eat snakes like they're spaghetti. Hmm. And uh, this year we had... uh, uh, an eastern diamondback rattlesnake, which they're not even supposed to be in Louisiana anymore. We had one of those come up, was against the house, right where the wife and I were working, so we're lucky we didn't get bitten there. And uh, a timber rattler came up right in the middle of the backyard. And uh, we think it's because the hogs are stressing them and, and driving them out. Any, uh, any correlation to that? Uh, James, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I I, I will speak personally at, at at our farm in North Mississippi. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of a lot of snakes. Uh, even saw one of my first rattlesnakes on the on the property. Uh, and since we've started seeing wild hogs in the last two years, we've seen a lot less snakes. Uh, we've seen also when we're getting, preparing for food plots, I'm seeing a lot more, you know, cotton rats and 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 other rodents as well due to that. Uh, but we have a huge wild hog problem uh, since some of the, the Spanish explorers came in into the United States back in the 15 and 1600s. That was their food source and it, the hogs ran with them. So we, you know, a lot of those got out there. We obviously were not fences and we have a huge explosion, you know, in, in almost in every state in the United States now. People say that, that they're not worried about him being in, the, in, in some of the northern states. Well, you know, there is such a thing as a Russian boar, and I'm pretty sure Russia is not below the equator. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really worried about where, where wild hogs and the population and what it's doing and damaging our native wildlife species. We've really got to get a better control on that as a country. All right. Uh, Time for another break. Uh, When we return, we'll continue talking with our guest for today, James Cummins, about Wildlife Mississippi. We'll talk about how you can get involved. Also, we're ready for your pet questions or other brushes with nature that you'd like to tell us about. Call us, 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest for the hour, James Cummins, executive director of Wildlife Mississippi. If you missed any of today's show, you can subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB public media app for your smartphone and you have access to all the local uh, MPB Think Radio shows on your schedule. If you want to join our conversation this morning, and we've got some open phone lines, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 
672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, James, we've mentioned the Great American Outdoors Act. Uh, Let's talk about another piece of legislation that you were involved with, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Tell us about that is and where in the process it might be. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So, not several years ago, a lot of our state wildlife agencies, you know, coordinated by the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, uh, really put together kind of a blue ribbon panel, and that and that was that blue ribbon panel was headed up by a gentleman by the name of Johnny Morris, and and Johnny owns uh, Bass Pro Shops in Cabela's. Johnny's son also went to Ole Miss, I might add. Uh, but, but the purpose of that Blue Ribbon panel was to really look at, 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 at our crisis that we have from a standpoint of wildlife in, in the country. And if you look at our bird species, you know, we've been talking a lot about birds and hummingbirds this morning. About a third of all the birds in North America are really in urgent need of conservation. Forty percent of our freshwater fish are at risk. About that same percentage of amphibians, uh, reptiles, we're talking about snakes. About a third of our turtles are, are, are threatened right now. Uh, Butterflies, bumblebees, they're also in, in, in decline. Uh, bats as well, freshwater mussels, 70% are in decline. Well, if, if we want to try to enjoy natural areas and enjoy recreation like we've been doing, we've got to make sure that, that we take care of these species uh, be, before we get into more of a regulatory uh, perspective with the Endangered Species Act. So one of the things that, uh, you know, that, that this particular piece of legislation, you know, uh, does is really help fund uh, to the tune of about $1.3 billion in dedicated annual funding that goes to our state wildlife agencies. Uh, you know, the, the legislation, you know, it, 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 it's pending in Congress. I really don't see this, piece, this particular bill passing uh, as, as the Senate, you know, unless they come back to vote on a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, they're going home next week. The House will still be in session for, for at least another week. But I don't see enough time left in this legislative calendar to, to get this piece, this piece of legislation passed. Uh, it will be a, it is attached to the transportation bill. Uh, and obviously we, we do, you know, many of us that are uh, policy nerds like myself uh, will be working on that bill next year. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure this piece, this this piece of legislation stays within the transportation bill or the moving forward act, as, as that particular bill is called. Uh, so you, you mentioned the need for, for conservation efforts on a lot of different uh, animals and species. You mentioned there, what do we need to do? Is conservation primarily habitat restoration? How do we conserve our natural resources? So that uh, habitat you know, conservation is one of the, the primary tools. Uh, you know, we've really got to look at, at any actions that we take as humans and how can we have, you know, a lower footprint, you know, on, on habitat, a lower footprint on our environment. Uh, you know, if you take a lot of the aquatic species, for example, most of those species, you know, where the problems occur are in the southeastern United States. And a, a lot of what we've done is, is, is done things, you know, whether it be channelizing you know, rivers and streams or whatnot. So we've got to do a better job of taking care of our aquatic resources, uh, a better job of, of, of enhancing and restoring our rivers and streams uh, so that we take care of species like mussels and fish and, and, and some of the amphibians that are nearby. Uh, let's talk about another piece of legislation that includes important provisions for fish, habitat, wetlands, and chronic wasting disease, all important issues for Mississippians. Uh, the America's Conservation Enhancement Act. If you would uh, tell us about that one. 
Absolutely. And that, that is one that I feel very, very good about getting, uh, getting passed this year. So it, as you've mentioned, several, uh, several components of, of that legislation, it is a compilation of about a, do, a dozen di- different conservation or, or public access provisions. Uh, the North American Wetlands Conservation Act that you mentioned is, is certainly one of the top ones. Uh, in there is funding for it at, at, at $60 million annually for five years. And, and this piece of legislation has really been pretty active in, in, in Mississippi with improving wetland and, and waterfowl habitat. Um, we were very fortunate. Senator Cochran was a member of the Migratory Bird Conservation Commission, so he approved all that funding uh, that, that, that went before he was one of two U.S. senators that, that sat on that commission. Uh, so Mississippi's been a pretty good recipient of that in the past, with over 20 projects and about 75,000 acres of, of habitat conserved. So that 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 puts a, uh, some pretty significant you know help towards some of the species that, that I was talking about just a little bit ago, you know, and kind of getting a little bit more at, at home. Uh, we've recently uh, purchased uh, about 300 acres at the Fannie Cook Natural Area at, at Bluewood, uh, so we were able to expand that with some of the North American Wetlands Conservation Act uh, uh, funds. So it's really important to Mississippi and we're, we're very excited that, that that is in the in this piece of legislation. Uh, National Fish Habitat Partnership is, a, is another component. We do a lot of work on Bayou Pierre uh, in Kapai and Claiborne counties, uh, as well as on the Butahatchee River up in Monroe and Lowndes counties. Uh, uh, you've got Mississippi, the uh, Angie Rogers with the Lower Mississippi River Conservation Committee, uh, and and also with the private John Adlin National Fish Hatchery in Tupelo, they work together and do a lot of fish habitat work, not only in Mississippi, but throughout the Southeast, and we're fortunate to have that expertise here. Uh, but this, this particular piece is funded at a little over $7 million annually for five years. And finally, you know, in the bill, it, it sets up a task force within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to, to try to how do we deal with chronic wasting disease? How can we have a, a, t- a live test so we don't have to, to take the animal's life in order to determine if that if that doe or buck has CWD or not? So that's an important component as well. Uh, let's end this segment by talking about another project that uh, Wildlife Mississippi is proud of. Talk to us about the Skylake Wildlife Boardwalk. I know nothing about that. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I remember when we had a dedicated dedication you know uh, of it and governor ms barber was there and and uh we were at the very end of the tree at the very end of the trail and this big huge cypress tree is there and i said i was actually going to a party uh for julia reed's birthday party and many of you may know julia reed passed away about two weeks ago but before that inside that large tree i asked my wife to marry me and i was telling haley that because i knew you were a tree hugger so uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh but anyway, so long story short, we were able to, to work with the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks and through their recreational trails program and construct about an 1,800-foot-long boardwalk. Uh, we're very pleased. They, we, we've worked, been working with them over this past year to really, you know, try to give the, give the boardwalk a little freshening up, put some, some additional treatment on it to last longer, replace some of the bad boards. Uh, in it and and really try to make it it not only more safe but but more appealing to the eye you know is is typically you know treated wood that's ten years or so old gets so uh, but it is you're you're looking at at trees that are upwards of two thousand years old and it's not just one it's hundreds of trees and and not only is the boardwalk pretty phenomenal but 
getting out there in a, in a kayak or a canoe and canoeing up to one of these giants is uh, it's pretty impressive. It's also pretty impressive to know that that we as Mississippians took care of, of such an ancient forest and, and took the time to preserve it. And then more recently took the time to make sure it's available to the public. All right. As I mentioned earlier, a friend of mine and I love to go out hiking. And so uh, where is Sky Lake? This one sounds like one we want to put on our list. So Sky Lake is approximately seven miles north of Belzona, Mississippi, in Humphreys County. That's the catfish capital of the world, for those that, that keep track of such. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you go up uh, Highway 7, you will see signs that will take you. Uh, there's the Sky Lake Wildlife Management Area, and this particular co- uh, component is within that wildlife management area. All right. And so there's a pavilion, there are restrooms. Uh, so take your sandwich, enjoy enjoy some of our beautiful fall air. We're getting into some, uh, well, I started to say lower humidity, but that's not quite case the, the case today. Uh, <laughs> but certainly better temperatures. Great. Like I said, I'm definitely going to add that one to my list. We enjoy doing that and, and always do pack a picnic lunch to go along with it. So time for our last break of hey, this hour. Kev- yeah, go ahead, Libby. Oh, I was just going to add Delta Windbirds. You remember Jason Hoeksman was on the show a few weeks ago. They've just purchased a piece of land adjacent to Sky Lake, too, that they're opening for recreation. So they joined in on it, too. Everybody realizes what an incredible piece of property that is, I think. All right. Very good. It is time for our last break. When we come back, we'll wrap up our conversation with our guest for the day, James Cummins, the executive director of Wildlife Mississippi. Uh, If you want to join our conversation, you can still call in. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is 1-877-672-7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the show after this, so stay tuned. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest today is James Cummins, Executive Director of Wildlife Mississippi. There's still time to join our conversation with your phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you missed any of today's show, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app or listen to uh, by downloading the MPB public media app for your smartphone. Speaking of uh, emails, we do have one here for Dr. Major, and it asks, are there any over-the-counter topical flea or tick medications that you'd recommend for a small seizure dog? That's a great question. Uh, not knowing how big the dog is, I guess small is the word there. Uh, this it's a difficult thing uh, as far as some of these medications to use on dogs that are having seizures, and it can potentiate seizures. In other words, not necessarily causing them, but causing the dog that has the tendency to for seizure. Uh, there's a few that may be. Some of them are not over-the-counter. I would really consult with your veterinarian about that. Uh, I'm not familiar with all the ones that you can see at the uh, at the 
grocery or wherever or uh, pet store, I would I would talk to your veterinarian about what specifically uh, this dog needs. I think that would be the best thing. Okay. Uh, so, James, uh, we've been talking about Wildlife Mississippi and the work that they do. If someone is uh, listening and is interested, are there ways that uh, people can get involved? Absolutely. Let me let me mention one thing that I failed to mention on the America's Conservation Enhancement Act earlier. So it is passed the Senate. An identical version is on the floor or will be on the floor this next Tuesday in the House. Uh, so once that's passed, you can go straight to the president's desk. It won't, won't need a conference. So we're looking forward to seeing that piece of legislation become law here in the next five days or so. Uh, but absolutely, there's, you know, kind of talking about Strawberry Plains or any number of different groups, you know, many of us work toward raising dollars in the, in the nonprofit and conservation world through, through fundraisers. And that's people getting together, you know, putting in private dollars and trying to help out conservation. Well, that's, that's really hurt groups like, like Audubon, like National Wild Turkey Federation, the Wildlife Federation, us and others. So, so if there's anything that I would like to, to mention, we don't have taxing authority like a state or federal agency. So try to support the conservation group of your choice and, and, and think about them as we enter into these, these last few months of the year. And if you've got some, some dollars you can spare, try to, try to help those out because they, they, they're really struggling uh, this year. So that's certainly one way. Uh, you know, uh, Libby was very, very instrumental in working with some of the Pearl, uh, Pearl River River Keepers this, uh, uh, this in the last 10 days, uh, really cleaning, you know, volunteering and help cleaning, cleaning up the Fanny Cook natural area. So whether you're, you're contributing dollars, whether you're volunteering, there are plenty of ways to, to, to help or just going in and helping putting habitat on your own, on your own small farm or property. Uh, so there's lots of ways uh, that that one in Mississippi can can certainly help, you know. All right, uh, let's get one final call in. Our friend Dudley from Calhoun County is on the line. Good morning, Dudley. Go ahead. Good morning. Really, am enjoying the show. Um, my concern is how does the Soil and Water Conservation Service fit into the uh, the national scheme of things. Uh, I've heard you mention many other things, but nothing about the, our soil and water. Well, you you're, you just asked a question that's near and dear to my heart. So uh, if there's any, any one organization I work with, and they've gone through a name change, uh, uh, now it's, it's the Natural Resources Conservation Service. They, they do more work naturally putting more habitat on the ground. Uh, if you look at the, the U.S. Farm Bill, the value of that conservation title is right at about $7 billion. Uh, just through NRCS alone, 1 million acres in the lower Mississippi River Valley has been restored back to Bottleman Hardwoods through one of their programs called Wetland Reserve. They're spending a lot of time and money putting pollinator habitat out on the ground, habitat for butterflies, for bees. So, so Look, there's no better champion than the, than the old Soil and Water Conservation Service or, the, or NRCS now. Uh, so I really appreciate you bringing that to, to, to everyone's attention. All right, Dudley, thanks for your phone call. Uh, James, has COVID affected conservation efforts in any way? It, yes, it certainly has. And, and it, it was more so, you know, earlier in the year, uh, you know, when, when we all couldn't travel, a lot of the, a lot of those that are working with our, our government natural resource agencies, many of those still are under limited uh, travel provisions. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been on a plane or been in an in-person meeting uh, since March. Uh, so we were finally able to get out and, and some of our staff do some field work. 
you know, and certainly if you look at, at landowners, you know, the previous caller talking about private land, most of our private land is, is owned by a generation that's a little bit older, you know, and it's, it makes it difficult. You don't want to, you don't want to infect them. So it's, it's made things very difficult uh, in terms of trying to, to move, move conservation forward. Uh, and I will say from a standpoint of COVID, you know, our natural resource areas, Mississippi, you know, has some pretty bad statistics, whether it's, you know, about health, about uh, active exercise, uh, uh, social distancing, uh, you know, our, our natural areas out there in the recreation areas can really help alleviate a lot, a lot of our ailments. You know, and I'm, I'm reminded of us just in terms of organic food, you know, whether it's venison, which has has components in it that that help are good with cancer. But I'm I had an opportunity to, to spend quite a bit of time with Justice Scalia before he lived before he passed away. But one of his favorite things was catching bluegill from Mississippi and taking them back and cooking, cooking them up for Justice Ginsburg. So uh, 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 I'll, I'll always remember that. But they were always they may disagree politically, but they always got along as great friends. Uh, but but a source of food is is also very important to us. Uh, just got about 30 seconds left. Is there a website that Wildlife Mississippi has that folks might go to to learn more about the work that you do? A- absolutely. If one can go to Wildlife Miss, that's W-I-L-D-L-I-F-E-M-I-S-S, not postal code M-S, but M-I-S-S dot O-R-G. Uh, there's a lot of information on there. If you need help with your own uh, private land, uh, like one of the earlier callers had mentioned about private lands, uh, uh, you can you can contact us. We'll be glad to help you, and also learn about some of the, the many different programs that that we do uh, uh, throughout the state of Mississippi. All right, James. Thanks so much for joining us today. Creature Comforts is a production of M- a Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by generous listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org/slash Creature Comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener is Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest James Cummins, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.